Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So this morning we're taking a, a short detour from Isaiah, only because my week got seriously compressed with some travel Monday to Wednesday. I went to see my, my mom. Everett and I drove down to celebrate her 75th birthday for a couple days, and well, really for just one day, and then we had to turn around and come back because it's a full day of driving each way. But uh, the text that was in front of us, 60 to 62, was just too much. It's too massive. It's all about the new heavens and the new earth, and it's, it's a large chunk of text, and it's, it really it requires a full week's preparation. But in, in the spirit of that, um, I wanted to take a look at this theme from James. Um, those of you who have been a part of our church for a while know that we taught through this book a while back. And uh, in James chapter 5 is really the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at verses 7 to 11. One of the familiar refrains throughout Scripture we hear over and over again is this, um, this plea by the, the, the writers of Scripture, uh, how, and they say something like this. They say, how long, O Lord? Well, maybe you've seen that, and the psalmists say this quite a bit, whether it was David or, who, or other psalm writers. Psalm 6 and verse 3, it says, um, it says well, in verse 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? This is just kind of the longing of his heart. Uh, how long is God going to look on his situation uh, and not act? Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2 begin, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Again, just giving voice. This is really a lament. Uh, it's, it's him giving voice to um, his terrible and difficult circumstances. Psalm 74, verse 9, we do not see our signs. This is speaking of, of God withholding his revelation. We do not see our signs. There are no longer, There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who know how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Or Psalm 94 in verse 3, the psalmist says there, he says, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, wicked exult? This plea, this continual refrain, and there's many other references we could point to, how long, O Lord, that's verbalized again and again by the lips of the psalm writers, is really the cry of a heart that aches for relief and that longs for righteousness. It's the cry of a heart that aches for all that is broken and wrong and evil in this present world, and they long for it to be made whole, they long for it to be made right and to be made good. And when uttered by the mouth of the psalmist to God, like we see in those references we just looked at, this plea acknowledges really two realities. Two things are kind of embodied in this plea. One is that this world and all who are in it we under, we, it's an acknowledgement this world is it's a tough world. We live in a difficult world. There's hardship, there's, there's disappointment, there's outright wickedness that seems to kind of prevail. So it's an acknowledgement that we live in a fallen world. And secondly, it's an acknowledgement that the God of the Bible is the one and only sovereign who can make right that which is wrong. Job says in chapter 5 and verse 7, for man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. I mean, it's just as, as, as um, 
axiomatically as sparks move upwards. So, so this world is filled with tribulation. Jesus warned his disciples before he went to the cross, in the world, he says, you will have trials and tribulations. Paul and Barnabas instructed the disciples at Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. In Acts chapter 14, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And at the same time, God's people cry out as they do. Uh, we see Paul ending his letter to the Corinthian church. As we see John ending his letter, uh, uh, or his, his apocalypse, he cries out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. There's this acknowledgement that, that this is yet to come. What I want to look at this morning in James chapter 5 addresses both of these realities. James chapter 5, 7 to 11 acknowledges that, yes, we live in a world that is filled with hardship. Yes, we live in a world that is filled with difficulties and wickedness. And it also speaks to the fact, this passage does, to the fact that the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is the only one who will make it right. And in a sentence then, our text this morning is a call for believers to exercise patient perseverance. That's really the heart of this text, and that's why we're looking at it. In a world that's filled with evil and wickedness and disappointment and seemingly endless loss, James tells us that heavenly wisdom, which is kind of the theme of the whole book of James, that heavenly wisdom demands believers exercise patient perseverance. If you back up into the preceding verses of chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, James has a strong word of warning. Like uh, he's, he's acting very much like a prophet in these verses. And he is confronting the ju- and judging those who have put their trust in material possessions, those who are trusting in things rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he speaks right at the selfishly rich who have put all their hope and joy and put all their eggs, so to speak, in, in confidence, in the thing, they all put it in that basket of the world. And, uh, and, and he says, you've bought into a mirage of materialism, and, and therefore, um, because of that, they are hoarding those things and actually oppressing and hurting those around them, those who are poor and those who are less fortunate. And, uh, and the text kind of works in reverse. You could look at verses 4 to 6, and you see materialism's indictment from the past. He's saying your laborers, you know, they're, they're in the fields, and you've withheld proper compensation for them, and in, that injustice is crying out. You know, you've lived fat on the hog, verse 5, and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he can't do anything about it, verse 6. He says, all your past deeds are indicting you, and, and materialism's judgment stands over you from the past. And then in verses 2 and 3, he talks about the, their failure in the present, he says, your riches are, have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And so, in other words, it's, 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 it's not going to be there for you at the end of the age. This is, this is really a waste, and you've given your life to vainglory. And then in verse 1, he, he gives a judgment for the present. And he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This section begins then in verse 1 with this warning of judgment, and it's meant to provoke. It's meant to provoke a response of repentance in the hearts of his audience, his readers. 
Um, and he wants them to, to stop fixing their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And this warning of impending judgment is meant to provide, really, relief to those who are suffering, those who are oppressed. It's meant to remind them, James, is, as he's writing to this, uh, he's writing to primarily Jewish audience, and this is one of the earliest New Testament books, but he's writing to address those who are suffering, and it's meant to remind them that God is not mocked, that, that those who sow to the flesh will, if they re- continue in that to the end of their life, will reap corruption, judgment. And it's also meant to remind them that the Lord has taken notice, that it, it has not escaped his watching eye. And while justice and compassion and kindness may elude them as believers in this life, that as they cry out to God, as they pour out their hearts to him in their day of calamity, that God does hear them. God does give heed to the voice of their supplications and that God will answer. And so as you come to chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, um, this, uh, and it's really continued even from back in chapter 4, verse 13, all the way into chapter 5, you could almost say that he, you know, you could call this Hurricane James because he, he shifts gears and he's very confrontational in this section. And now that hurricane, just like if you ever lived through one, they come on hard and fast and sometimes they often leave hard and, and fast as well. Now James comes in in verse 7 to provide some relief. Right? He's no longer addressing them as you who say this or you who are rich and so forth. He's not confronting. He's not, he's not speaking aggressively. Now he's addressing them, verse 7, as brethren. So he's kind of taken off the prophet's mantle and he's taken up the shepherd's staff. And, uh, and now he's ministering life-giving words to those who are, who are enduring just all too familiar hardship and difficulty in an evil world. He's writing to those who cry out, how long, O Lord? That's who he's addressing. And he says, therefore, verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. This passage we said, is a call to patient perseverance in a world that is filled with hardship and difficulties and trials. And in a way, James has kind of come full circle in this letter. If you look at chapter 1, he's already addressed some of these themes before in the opening verses. He's addressed themes like persevering under trial, chapter 1, count it all joy when you experience various trials. He's talked about looking to um, the eternal reward. He speaks of prayer in chapter 1. So as you come to the end of the book, he is, in a sense, recapitulating. He's coming back to these themes, these truths that he's already spoken about to, to essentially cement those things into the minds of his audience. And that's what he's meant to do for us this morning. And the issue James wants to clarify and to, to set in our mind 
that is worth repeating and reinforcing is this necessity of patient perseverance in the midst of trial. The terms that are used here, patience, strengthen, persevere, those are all terms that point out that we must go through trials. We must pass through them steadfast in faith to the end of our time here on this earth. And so in order to do that, in order to help us do that, James lays out really three, um, three ex- instructions, you could say, in these verses that help us patiently persevere in the midst of our trials. It's a very instructive portion. James is a super practical letter. It's a, it's a wisdom book. And so he, is, uh, he certainly lives up, to that, lives up to that in this section this morning. And he says it's a mental exercise. It requires spiritual discipline to keep seeking those things above, not the things below, to set our minds on them and, and not to be fixated in our earthly situation. And that's really hard to do. Like, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, if you've, we've all experienced trials to varying degrees. It's hard to do that. It's hard to keep our eye on the prize. In fact, I would submit to you it's impossible to do consistently apart from the Spirit's enablement for the believer. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we trust Christ, no matter what this hellish world throws at you, it requires a supernatural work of God to be faithful to him. And we have to recognize when that happens, when we do have those moments of patient perseverance, we don't get credit for that. God gets the credit for that, and we, we thank him for it. So I want to break this text down to three, three um, exhortations, three instructions that James gives us. The first comes in verses 7 and 9, and it is this, remember the Lord's coming is near. Remember that the Lord's coming is near. Look at verse 7. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. He says, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, two times here, James refers to the Lord's coming, his his arrival. In the early church, the Lord's coming, his arrival, took on a fixed meaning to speak of Jesus' return from heaven in glory and to exercise final judgment. In fact, theologians have a special word for this. If you read commentaries or maybe Bible study notes, you might see this term, uh, this Greek term thrown around, parousia. Parousia is just a word to speak of the Lord's coming. It becomes a technical term, a comprehensive term to explain Christ's return in judgment. Jesus speaks about his coming. Paul speaks about Christ's coming. Uh, John speaks about Christ's coming. Peter and, of course, James as well. Jesus especially is is worth noting. If you look at chapter uh, 24 uh, of of, Jesus, That section is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is speaking about what is to come in the future. And uh, looking at chapter uh, 24 and verse, I guess it starts in verse 3, he says, um, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming, your parousia at the end of the age? 
And then Jesus goes on to describe what kinds of things will be taking place. Verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, Verse 37, he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. In other words, it will happen abruptly as things are kind of carrying on. Verse 39, and they did not understand Uh, speaking of those in that day, of Noah's day, did not understand until the flood came and took them away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus' explanation of his coming then is is spoken of as this time of his glorious return, his glorious return to gather up God's people and to begin to execute his final judgment upon the earth. Paul fills in some of the gaps of our understanding on the Lord's coming in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at that in equipping hour next Sunday, but um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse uh, 19, he says, For who is our, speaking of them, the Thessalonians, Paul says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, the church, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Again in chapter 3. In verse 13, so he prays that they may, God may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, and he wants them to stand firm at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And uh, he references it again in 2 Thessalonians. John talks about the Lord's coming in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, Peter and 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, and, and, and so forth. It's, it's a common um, topic that we see throughout the New Testament. James picks up this teaching about our Lord's coming, his return, and uses it as an encouragement to his readers to persevere in the midst of trials. He says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And to help them conceptualize the need for patience, he paints a word picture for them that everybody in that day would have understood. In fact, we mostly understand it today. He talks about a farmer waiting for the early and late rains that come in the autumn and the spring. Look at verse 7. He says, The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. He says, You too be patient. This is an agrarian society. They literally build their calendar around sowing and reaping. Like that, that's how you exist. And especially in a land like Israel, the land is arid. They only have so many months out of the year to grow things because there's no rain in the summer, pretty much. And so James connects what they know, something they're familiar with, farming, growing things. We all know that with something they don't know as much about, that is persevering under trial. And in Israel... The early rains were the rains that happened when they sowed seed. Um, this would have been in the beginning of November time frame, likely. Even today, that part of the world looks expectantly to the early rains that come in the fall after the seed is sown in the ground, right? Um, you grew up in the West Coast. Many of you lived in California. You know, it doesn't rain in the summer in California. Same climate as Israel. The rain happens in the wintertime, the fall, winter, and spring. So it is in Israel. The late rains, the early rains were in the, spring, in the fall. The late rains come in the spring in April. And that's when the grain harvest is just reaching its full, ripened state and is ready for harvest. Farmers then, he says, form an ideal illustration because once they've planted their seed in the field, 
they cannot do anything to make their crops grow and produce the fruit. And that was especially true in the first century. The only option then was for the farmer to wait, to wait. They have to wait until the Lord sends rain and they have to wait until the appropriate time for the fullness of the harvest. Of course, the point of the analogy is, is, is obvious. Just as the farmer must wait patiently and persevere, unable to force God's hand, unable to change their situation to send rain or produce growth, in the same way we too must patiently persevere in the midst of trials. Because we can't compel Christ to return and we can't, uh, we can't always do anything to alleviate our circumstances. And that's why he says, you too, verse 8, be patient in this way. But again, it's not waiting just for waiting's sake, like, like a trip to the DMV, right? It's, it's waiting in anticipation of the future blessing that is ours at the Lord's coming. These commands, be patient, strengthen your heart, um, don't complain, are all possible, James says, because, what is sure, because of what is sure to take place in the future. And that's what he gives us there. He says, well, you can do this, strengthen your hearts. The reason is given at the end of verse 8. For, because the coming of the Lord is near. This verb, to draw near, is just what it sounds like, just what it's translated as. It is to draw near. It is used to describe something that is so close that its impact is already starting to be felt. Mark chapter 1 Chapter 11 and verse 1 uh, gives us an example of this idea of nearness with kind of proximity and impact. If you look at um, Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem, and uh, it says, As they and his disciples approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples and said, Go into the village, and, and he gives them instruction. The point is they were close to the city, but they weren't there yet. But they were close enough that he says, now you guys run on ahead and, and set these things in order. So not arrived yet, but close enough for things to start happening. So when James says here in verse 7, uh, seven 8, and 9, that the Lord's return is near, he is pointing out that it has not arrived, right? Christ hasn't returned. But it is imminent, meaning that it can happen at any time. Nothing has yet to happen on God's prophetic timetable before his parousia. That's why James, uh, Jesus says in Luke 12, be dressed in readiness. Right? Keep your lamps lit like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. The imminence is reinforced by what James goes on to say then in verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. There's one thing that trials do is they reveal our, our discontent, right? They reveal what's really in our hearts. Difficulties, disappointments, and evil as it drags on it, and as that piles up, as the Lord's coming is delayed, there is a temptation to what? Grumble. There's a temptation to complain, to uh, lash out at others. James says we should not do that. We have to be patient. We must tame the tongue. And what's the motivation for that? The end of verse 9, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. 
many professing Christians act like God's judgment remains sort of like out there somewhere, way out in the distant future. And James argues just the opposite. He says, Christ's return is close at hand, on the threshold of the doorway, and so we ought to behave righteously in light of it. I mean, kids act differently when their parents are in the room, right? And that's how we are to live. In the watchful eye of our Lord and Savior, he is standing right at the door. Again, the emphasis is on patiently persevering in trial because of what is sure to take place in the future. The Lord's coming, his, his arrival instills, at least for the believer, hope. That's what it should do. Because what's the hardest part of enduring trials? It's not knowing if or when that trial is going to resolve. When is it going to change? Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? And is that light a train? <laughs> or is it something we want to run into? And whether that trial is economic, financial, physical, political, spiritual, we have to remember the Lord's coming is imminent. And we can wait patiently and endure it. On the one hand, there's a future reward and blessing for those who are patiently waiting for Christ's return. And on the other hand, there's a swift and righteous judgment for those who've rejected his gospel. As one commentator said, from our earthbound perspective, we strengthen our hearts to keep hoping when the delay seems interminable, to keep trusting when God's timing seems questionable, and to keep working for righteousness when results seem meager. And we can do that. We can do that as we remember that the Lord's coming is any moment. It, it is near. And when he returns in his resurrection glory, he will make right all that is wrong and judge wicked and evil finally and decisively. So we can understand that because vengeance belongs to him, we can patiently endure suffering. There's a second instruction that comes to us in the text. Not only do we remember the Lord is near, but secondly, we need to remember the Lord's messengers as an example. You see that in verses 10 and the beginning part of verse 11. We need to remember the Lord's messengers as an example. He says, as an example, <laughs> brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. All throughout scripture, we're called to imitate godly people, right? Over and again, imitate godly people. Jesus said, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Speaking of washing the disciples' feet, being humble. Paul says, imitate me as I am an imitator of Christ. So imitating others' godly example, that's commendable. That's something that we ought to do and must do and as we'll see here, is really necessary for patient perseverance. James gives two templates that we should pattern our lives after in these verses. First, he talks about the prophets, and secondly, he references kind of everyone's favorite sufferer, Job. But he says, we remember the patient suffering of the prophets. The prophets, which is fitting since we're going through Isaiah. The suffering of the prophets is um, universally affirmed as you look at the Old Testament. Um, Israel's relationship with God's prophets is not generally a positive one <laughs> over the history that they had. Je in Jeremiah, in chapter 2, uh, in the beginning, just the very beginning of Jeremiah's 
um, instruction there in verses 29 and 30. He says, God speaking, why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your sons. They accept, speaking of Israel, they accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. This is how they treated the prophets. They treated them with contempt. They did everything in their power to force them to to stop speaking God's words. Verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 36, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again, speaking of God's people, again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and until there was no remedy. Even Jesus references their, Israel's long and sordid history of mistreating his prophets. In chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the, in the same way, meaning those who have suffered in God's name, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The, the life of a prophet was, to say the least, a challenge. It was a challenge. They were mocked. They were ignored. They were attacked. They were persecuted for their faithfulness. They stood sometimes as the lone voice of truth in a dark place, right? And they spoke God's law and they spoke it to leaders. They spoke it to those who were just hardened in their sin. The prophets spoke in the Lord's name. They spoke under his authority. They spoke his truth. And what did they get in return for their faithfulness? They got a lot of suffering. That was it. Jeremiah was tried for his life, put in the stocks, and thrown into a pit and left for dead. Isaiah, tradition tells us, didn't have a very good ending. He was sawn in two. Elijah ran as a fugitive for his life from Jezebel and Ahab. Hebrews 11 tells us that God's faithful messengers were tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, put to death with the sword, forced into destitution, afflicted, and ill-treated. The point James is making is one that they would have understood clearly. If these eminent servants of the Lord were exposed to suffering and hardship, if they were treated with um, harshly and rejected, persecuted and oppressed, then we should not be the least bit surprised if we, who are following Christ in his word, experience something similar. These celebrated prophets, you know, we think about Isaiah, like, wow, you know, he's Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They were rejected almost universally as they preached. He says, look at them. He says, don't just look at the prophet's words. He says, look to their example of patient suffering. He says, as the prophet suffered, what do they do? They still sought to glorify God by what they said and what they did. And, and, and the exhortation is for us to do the same, to do the same. But he doesn't just reference the prophets, he speaks of Job. And the patient perseverance of the prophets directs us to think about Job, who came way before any prophet in the Old Testament. In verse 11, uh, he says, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings with him. 
Now, if you read Job, you might be thinking, I don't think Job was that patient. Was he? I mean, he sometimes he seemed he was impatient. Chapter 9, he actually is kind of, seems a little mildly irritated. And certainly wasn't always patient with his friends who were giving him all this human wisdom, trying to explain his situation to him. But notice James introduces a different word here to speak of Job's response to his trials. One that he hasn't used in the entire section yet. He says that he endured. He, he, he had, you've heard of the endurance of Job. See, while Job was struggling with the why question of what God was doing and through that whole thing, that whole scene, he didn't curse God, even though his family told him to. And while he wrestled with the sovereign purposes of God, not really understanding what was going on, Nevertheless, he started the trial well, and he ended it well, right? He endured. That's what, it, that's what it means to endure. It means to press on. Job, then, is held forth here in verse 11 as a template of endurance, one that you and I should pattern our lives after. We face trials. We face hardships. Evil men proceed from bad to worse in the world. We get that. But like Job, we must start well and we need to end well. We can't curse God and hope to die like his wife wanted him to do. We can't accept or capitulate to earthly wisdom that the world tries to pour on us in those circumstances like Job's friends were doing. I think one of the clearest lessons of Job is that trials don't mean pretending that we are not hurting that we are not tired, that we are not lonely. Read the book of Job. Job is not emotionless. He's not stoic. There is in his words the underlying anguish that we read in the psalmist, how long, O Lord, how long? And sometimes that's part of trials. It's, that's part of trials. It's weeping. It's dealing with confusion. It's heartache for what's lost. But it always resolves back to chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like that's the mindset that we're to have. And that's what James is pointing us to. That was the heartbeat of the prophets. And that was the heartbeat of Job. And he says, remember their example. So part of persevering under trials means remembering that the Lord is near. Secondly, remembering his messengers and their example. Third, and finally, James gives us instruction for patient perseverance. He says, remember the Lord's character, that it's merciful. Remember the Lord's character, that it's merciful. Look at the end of verse 11. You've heard of the endurance of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. What was the outcome of God's dealings with Job? Well, Job 42, verse 10 says, God restored the fortunes of Job. When the season of trial was over, when he had suffered long enough, God gave him back everything that he lost and actually added to what he had. Uh, Job 42 says that he died an old man and full of days. So he lived a full life. Why did he do that? Why, why did God do this for Job? He tells us because the Lord is full of compassion. He's merciful. These terms, compassionate, 
this term compassion speaks of exceedingly kind in one's dealings. Yeah, merciful, obviously, was, is withholding what Job truly deserved as a sinner. James doesn't leave us ignorant of God's purposes in Job's trial. He explains that those things happened, if for no other reason, that he might put his grace on display in his mercy. Now, is James then telling us, by pointing out Job, that all our trials are going to be resolved like Job's, that we're all going to, you know, live out our days rich and blessed. That's not what he's saying. Job experienced God's kindness and mercy in his present life because that's what God purposed for him. That was unique to him. But we can't know, nor should we expect that God will do exactly the same with us. So what's the message? In other words, we should focus, the message is we should focus on the ultimate outcome of our trials, that the Lord's coming is certain. And when he comes, Jesus says in Revelation 22 and verse 12, my reward, Jesus says, is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. We know that our God is a compassionate and merciful God. And he will bless us as we endure. That's the, that's the thing. At that time, in the future, he will right what is wrong. At that time, those who have repented and put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sin will receive the fullness of the, as Peter says, the imperishable, undefiled, never fading away inheritance that he has prepared for us. Even now, Peter says, we are, to be, we are being kept by the power of, of our compassionate and merciful God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the Lord's coming. And not only will our compassionate and merciful Savior who creates and reveals and saves and sustains, will he not only care for us and bless us as his, as his beloved children, it's not only that we will be showered with rewards, but he will also judge unrighteousness. Every person who escapes justice in this life, every situation where evil seems to prevail, every act of rebellion and oppression that we see, every distortion and perversion of God's truth, every indifference, all of it is judged in perfect righteousness. And so we can, we can take heart that we can patiently persevere in faith and obedience in the midst of trials because we know our God is compassionate and he's merciful. He showers grace upon grace upon his children and he does not excuse the wicked. This is who he is. And because of who he is, we can be confident in what he's doing. Spurgeon in his sermon on these verses, actually asked two questions, which I think are helpful for us in, as we think about sort of applying the text. The first question Spurgeon asks is, how are you waiting? Right, we're, the whole theme of what we're looking at Isaiah is, how do we live in the in-between time? The waiting time. So these texts, this text, and that's why I chose this text this morning. How are you waiting? Are you waiting patiently? Are you a sufferer? He goes on to ask, let me, let me ask you this. He says, what farmer finds a harvest in the first month? What farmer expects he'll reap in the early spring? Not one. What does he do? He waits. He waits. The sun rises and sets. The moon waxes and wanes. The farmer waits 
patiently until the appointed time comes. And so the application is, in the same way, we shouldn't expect to see immediate relief, nor should we expect results of our trial to, to be uh, dealt with. We have to be patient. You know, are, are you waiting actively like the farmer? The farmer waits, but he also waits with his hand at the task. He doesn't just wait around in his house for six months. He can't he can't, Spurgeon says, he can't push on the months and he can't squeeze out the raindrops, but he's not sluggish or negligent. He weeds, he fertilizes, he keeps to his work. And he says it's the same with us. So, so as we persevere on our trials, we wait on the Lord's outcome. We need to be about the work that God's given us. And the work he's given us is to what? Make disciples of the nations. We're to be disciple-making disciples. We are to run in such a way that you may win. That's why we, we run for the prize. But the second question Spurgeon asks is not just how are you waiting. The second question he asks is this, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? For some, when they experience trials, all they're waiting for is for their earthly circumstances to get better. Just make the heart go away. That's all they care about. And that's not a wrong thing to want. But the thing is, when that doesn't happen on their timetable, what happens? They become discouraged. They become angry at God. Why would you let this happen for this long, in this way? But for those who are patiently persevering, they're waiting for Christ. And even if we do that imperfectly, we are waiting for him. Their eyes are looking beyond this world in anticipation of the coming of Christ himself. As Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus, they are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, are you waiting for your circumstances to change if you're even in the midst of trial now? Or are you waiting for Christ? That's a tell. It's a tell of where your heart truly lies. And, and so we're looking, I wanted to look at this text this morning because as we come to Isaiah 60 to 62, he is going to give us a beautiful and glorious picture and portrait of what we're waiting for. We are going to be looking at the new, you know, God's kingdom come, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. And he's going to describe it in all of its beauty, and bookended on either side of that is the Lord's judgment. It's both of the themes that we're talking about this morning. Patient perseverance with an eye toward glory and a reality that God is a righteous judge. And he will right all that is wrong. So James, James, thank you. You, you set me up perfectly this morning for next Sunday because when we look at those passages, those chapters, we're going to see all those things come together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, the, I, again, just always amazed at the coherence of your word, how every part seems to fit together like a perfect puzzle spread over thousands of years through dozens and dozens of authors, and yet a cohesive and true and perfect whole. Uh, Lord, there are many in our midst who are in the midst of trials. Um, maybe those aren't the the sort of uh, things that we hear the prophets enduring. Maybe they're not the same intensity as the person to our left or our right. 
but there's still trials and there's difficulties and there's hardship. And, and Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to persevere. And don't be, may we not become embittered. May we not turn our words against you or against one another in those difficulties, but instead entrust ourselves to you who judge righteously. And may we take to heart the example of the prophets. May we take to heart the example of Job. May we keep our eye on the prize. Lord, we thank you that your coming is near, that, that the impact of your kingdom is so close that its effects are already being felt in the world through your church and through the ministry of the gospel to your people, the Spirit's work in our hearts. Lord, all those things are, are, an, are an earnest and a down payment of those things that are to come. And so we pray, like, like John writes, Lord, come, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.